Hey, this is Sammy Flores. I'm the pastor at Coin Church in Chino, California, and this is our podcast. I'm so grateful you're tuning in. I hope this encourages you and calls you to more because you were made for more. Here's our latest message. So uh, we've been going through the, the book of John together, and we're only on John chapter 2. Last week was Father's Day, so we, we, I kind of curated a, a talk just for the fathers. Um, but the week before that, the, the, the conversation was uh, how Jesus is both tough and tender, and how he um, is a man that not only is tender, he can cry upon a city, right? He can um, be welcomed by, by women and children. He can... Um, be near and dear to the brokenhearted, and yet he can also flip tables, right? And he can speak to the storms and cast them out, right? And rebuke and come against those that bring an injustice to whatever the, the Spirit of God wants to do. And so uh, today, we, we sort of, um, we, we jump next into the passage where Jesus is just done flipping tables, and he's in Jerusalem at the time, and there's a festival going on, and all of, we talked about like, Honestly, it could have been millions at times would travel because it was a command in the Old Testament that on this particular festival, you were to go, the Passover, to go to actual, the space where you worship God, which is in the temple. And so many made the voyage and the journey to be there. And so Jesus flips the tables. He's upset because um, they were getting in the way of the presence of God. And they were using business um, to orchestrate the presence of God. And so many were getting in the way, specifically the Jews or those that weren't, I'm sorry, specifically the Gentiles, those that couldn't get to the Holy of Holies, to the closest spaces of the temple. temple. And so Jesus is like, no, this is not how it's supposed to be. And so there was an injustice. And so today we read in John chapter 2, if you want to open up your scriptures to uh, verses 19 and 25, it says this, starting at verse 19, Jesus answered them from their response, right? When he says, get out of here, stop turning my father's house into a market. And then in verse 19, Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, now this is John actually, um, note, remember, J- John as the apostle, didn't know this in this moment when Jesus said this. It had come to pass after Jesus was resurrected. And so he was able to look back and see the prophecy to which Jesus said about the body, about his temple. And he says, but the the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. And then there's a shift in verse 23. It says, now while he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many saw the signs he was performing, and they believed in him. And, and, and the signs could have been even Lazarus being raised from the dead, right? Like wild, powerful, those demon-possessed, cast it out, Right? Um, those that were sick, those that couldn't see, he was performing all sorts of miracles in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. And if I had a title today, I would define it the searcher of human hearts. The searcher of human hearts. And so, 
um, I, 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 I sort of pause when I look at this passage of scripture because there's so, man, so many things going on in and of itself. And we can only understand what John is trying to say because we are, are living and experiencing the resurrection of Jesus, right? Uh, even so much so that we become resurrected because of what Jesus has done. And what I mean by that is, is our hearts. Um, all of us know um, that, that we're pretty sinful people, if we could be honest. Sometimes our culture doesn't like that word, and it's just like we need to remind ourselves like sin is real. Sin is sin. It's not a problem, right? It's not, um, sometimes we try to like psychologically, I don't even, we try to make psychology and say, oh, you know, it's just this. And it's like, no, that's sin, right? Like, no, there's not, it's not a problem, that's, that's sin. And so we, we shouldn't have an issue with talking about that. And yet we can all agree that all of us fall short in sin and make mistakes. Some of us a little bit more than others. <laughs> Some of us a lot more extreme than others. Yet, when you look at the heart, the scripture makes it very clear that it's incredibly deceitful. Right? And so, Jesus then points something out and, and he, he, he tells us something here that he is the searcher, the understander of the human heart, the human conditions. Uh, so the Jews that witnessed the cleansing of the temple, if we could just talk about that just for a brief moment, of Jesus flipping the tables, asked, what right did Jesus have to act like that and demanded that he should at once prove his credentials by some sign? That's what they did. They are like, okay, only someone that could claim Messiah would do something like this. So prove yourself, Jesus. The point is this. They acknowledged the act of Jesus to be that of one who thereby claimed to be the Messiah. It was always expected that when the Messiah came, he would confirm his claims by doing amazing things. So remember, as a Jew, you were studied up knowing that this one day, Messiah would come and create peace in the land, would, would tear down, at least in their eyes, the Roman Empire, and Jesus would, as king, get back on his throne, which was the promise of King David that his throne would, would live forever. So they were hoping for that sort of king. False messiahs did in fact arise and promised to split the waters of the Jordan in two or make the walls of the city collapse at a word. So the popular idea of the messiah was connected with wonders. Okay, does that make sense? When they thought or, or conceived of a messiah to come, it was correlated synonymous to there were wonders that would take place. So the Jews said... By this act of yours, you have publicly claimed to be the Messiah. Now show us some wonder which will prove your claim. These were Jesus' words to, his, to their response, to, to, for his response. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. What a response, right? And by the way, that, that would have provoked anger in them because the temple was everything. The temple was at Mount Zion. The temple was a space where, I've shared this before, in synagogue you didn't worship, you were taught. It was at the temple you actually worshiped. So to a Jew, I can't properly worship until I'm in the temple in Jerusalem that is the highest point of the city. Does that make sense? So the temple was really, really crucial to the Jew. And yet Jesus says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. 
So you have to understand that they were pretty confused at Jesus' words, and they were, almost insu- they were insulted by what he said. They went on to think he was specifically talking about this, the physical temple. So that is why verse 21 and 22 were written long afterwards, right? But the temple, John says, he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture that the words Jesus had spoken. So Jesus was putting, watch this, an end to the old way of worshiping God that was made and arranged according to human design and had put in its place a spiritual worship. What he's trying to say is like, I understand the the, the beauty and the wonder of the temple. I'm not trying to diminish that, but I, I want you to know there's a new thing that God is trying to do, and it's much more powerful than just a specific location or building. The new way is that of any man or woman, both Jew or not, to come as they are. No need for ritual or customs or being elaborate. Just come as you are. That was what Jesus was after here. Jesus is saying, I make a way where the whole earth is my temple. The entirety of the world and all responsible to know the presence of God. All are, are welcome to experience this presence. Remember, I, I've shared this in the temple. There was the Holy of Holies that only a priest could go into where they would experience the tangible, powerful presence of God. And Jesus diminishes all of that. And he says, no, all can come and experience this presence. Um, but to the Jew, you had to like be pretty close to perfect to experience that. So you are, just as you are, able to experience the marvelous presence of God. Did you know that, by the way? Like, if you actually sit and and comprehend and think through, I understand in our minds on a weekly basis, some of us don't really think about Jesus on a regular basis, which I would argue is a problem because that, Jesus points out, is in everything we do to have him at the forefront of our mind, Paul says, Why? Because he is the way that will make things uh, healthy. And so when when he is at the forefront of my mind on any given day, then I can comprehend the beauty, the wonder, the majesty of this God. And so if I'm not thinking about Jesus on a regular, what happens? Other thoughts come in and lies come in and there's a distortion. Um, Sin prevails. It's just kind of not that big of a deal. And then it's like, oh, it's Sunday. Jesus, that's right. King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet we have something off here. So what I'm trying to say is, do you realize that you have access to the presence of God? Like like a tangible, real, it doesn't always have to be wild and supernatural. It could just be the calm, cool of the day, sitting in a posture, breathing in and out the goodness and the wonder of the Father that he loves you for no good reason, just because you are. Because some of us think, I have to do, 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 then I'll receive his love. And it's like, no, man, just sit. As the father told the son, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. Jesus had really done nothing up until this point. So just because of who you are in the image of God, you are loved. Does that make sense? No need for religion or sacrifices of animals. (laughs) No need to pay for God's presence. No need to dress a particular way or a certain way, right? No need to worry if you are a woman, if I'm being honest, because in the Old Testament, even the New Testament, there was a distortion there. 
Because remember, as a woman, you could only go so far in the chambers of the temple. Remember the echo in Joel that all flesh, both man and woman, would experience signs and wonders and prophesy and have dreams. All flesh. So women, you are not excluded in that. And I personally have a, a frustration in the, the church world that diminishes a woman. Not here. That's not what I read in the theology of Jesus and who he is and the beauty and the wonder. So all flesh, all people get to experience this tangible power in the presence. So with Jesus, all things are new. With Jesus, all are given a second, third, fourth, fifth, a hundredth chance, right? With Jesus, we can actually know the presence and the wonder and the beauty of God. And th this, is, this is my uh, encouragement to you as a disciple, if you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus. Do you realize that you don't have to go to Jerusalem to get into the Holy of Holies? Do you realize that? Um, for, for us, we, we really don't, I don't think, understand the magnitude there. That you and I both have access to that God. And yet, what, what are we doing in our everyday ordinary life? Are we actually acknowledging him? Are we actually sitting with him? Are, are we allowing him to reframe and renew our mind? As the scriptures say, to have the mind of Christ. Do you know you have access to that? And yet, because of the culture we live in, the enemy, um, I, I mean, I, I don't even know if it's the enemy. We're just busy because we're busy, and we forget about God. And yet, we, we have this access, right? So it was in 19 BC that Herod had begun to build that wondrous temple. It was not until AD 64 that the building was finally finished, but it was a 46 years since it had been started. It was to be nearly another 40 years before it was ended. Jesus shattered the Jews by telling them that all its magnific magnificence and splendor and the beauty and the wonder of this temple, all the money and the skill that had been lavished on it were completely irrelevant. That's what Jesus was saying, by the way. That's one of these claims is actually what got him put before Pontius Pilate that he was going to destroy the temple. Who does this man think he is? All that we've built, like our temple to our God, Yahweh, what, what an insult this man is to us. That he had come to show people a way to come to God without any temple at all. That must be exactly what Jesus said regarding the temple via Mark, because Mark has a different perspective. He says it, it wasn't going to be with physical hands. <laughs> Jesus was up to something here. But in the years to come, John saw far more than in Jesus is saying. He saw it nothing less than a prophecy of the resurrection. And John was right. He was right for the basic reason that the whole round earth could never become the temple of the living God until Jesus was released from the body and was everywhere present, until his spirit in Acts 2 was released. Like John could comprehend this after he saw and experienced acts, right? And, and, and the and expression and the power of the Holy Spirit being put on all flesh. He began to understand, oh, this is exactly what he meant. The resurrection power has done this for all of us. This was the promise of the resurrection of Christ. Jesus is saying, I am the temple and I am how you get to the spirit of God. Remember, Jesus is the spirit baptizer, right? It is only through me that you can taste heaven. 
So we get the temple part, right? I just, we had to go through that because we're going through the scriptures. You guys good? All right. So now we go into verse 23. It says, now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and they believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. So here we go. The answer is that Jesus knew human nature only all too well. He knew that there were many whose interest in him would be short-lived. How about here and now? I mean, how, how many of us, for you, Jesus is just, oh, he saved me, he saved me. And like that, that's the power of Jesus, by the way, that he saves us, but then it stops there. How many of us in the room in our discipleship to Jesus, because I remember when I was a little boy, I'm like, wow, Jesus can save me. I can go to heaven? Whoa, that's amazing. Like heaven, and so my eyes were fixated on heaven because he saved me, and I didn't realize in my immaturity as a young boy, as I grew, okay, there's something about heaven here on earth as well, that we must be consumed by this God, this Jesus, this wonder, this beauty, and then eventually we begin to act the same way our rabbi does, Jesus. So if there's a disconnect in your life, take heed, friend. And I would say take heed in such a way where you need to ask yourself this question, is Jesus really Lord of your life or is he just Savior? And honestly, I'm so caught up in this terminology and this perspective, I'll probably say this every week for a really long time. <laughs> because I'm growing in maturity to Jesus as well, if I'm being honest. And one of the things that he has taken a hold in my mind and heart and my conscience and my thinking and my knowledge is that for so long, some of us, many of us, maybe for the rest of our lives can just see him as savior and not ever sort of grow into maturity in a spiritual way with him. Jesus is the searcher of our hearts. He can't be deceived. He is able to see straight through all aspects of our lives and knows exactly what is in your heart, by the way. Have you ever been attracted to miracles and signs and wonders? I, I know I have. Like, honestly, like, I, like, love that stuff. But when we love that more than we love Jesus, there's something off. And, and that's what Jesus was after when, he, when the scripture says he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew they were following him for his his saving power. Yes, and that's good. I'm not diminishing that. He knew there were many would follow him because he was performing these wild miracles. But do you realize, like, if I'm being honest, this is hyperbole, that Jesus would turn and say, hey, if you really want to keep following, like hundreds would, would follow Jesus, by the way. I want you to know that. It wasn't just 12 disciples. He had many more disciples. At a point, 72 goes out and he sends, right? So even more than 72, there were more disciples, and there was moments where people would follow him. I mean, wouldn't you follow a guy that could, like, heal someone's eyes that were blind or someone who couldn't walk? Wouldn't you, like, want to be, like, what's up with this Jesus? You would follow him and want to know all about, could he possibly be the Messiah? Man, I just want to get as close as I can to see these miracles. This is wild. And then out of nowhere in the Gospels, oftentimes it says he looks back and he turns to them and he says, hey, if you want to follow me, then you're going to have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Who wants to keep following me? And the Bible says many would leave. Like, this guy's weird, man. I'm not doing that. 
And then he turned to the 12 and say, are, are you going to leave as well? Peter says, no, where would we go? I have nowhere else to go. And then another time where many are following him. Arguably after Lazarus, right, he raises, they follow him and he turns around and he says, hey, uh, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross then. To which to a Jew in this area was like, you're wild to say that. Why would we do that? Why would we die a Roman's death like that? Right? So if I see things, then I'll believe. Have you thought that? Oh, maybe, you know what, God, if you're really real, show me, and then I'll believe. Have you ever said that? And yet, <laughs> this is why we need to know our word. Like, that's the story of Israel, by the way. <laughs> they saw the signs and the wonders. They saw the beauty. They saw all of heaven come to earth. They saw moments where God was moving in a pillar. They, many, even in the first generation, could hear the trembles and the lightning as God spoke to Moses and came down with the Ten Commandments, and yet they still would worship a golden calf? So please don't, don't deceive. Like, like, we're just being honest here. I'm just being honest. Don't deceive yourself so much and be like, if you showed me this, then I'll follow you. It's like, oh, are, are you sure about that, man? Because just read the Old Testament. They saw all of it, and many still did not obey. And I've talked about this. There's a difference between hearing God and going, oh, man, yes, God, thank you, and, go, and then hearing him and obeying him. And that's where it becomes savior, but that's where when you obey, it becomes lordship. Does that make sense? So Jesus is savior. Jesus knew many would follow him because of his saving power, right? He knew that there were many who were attracted only by the sensational things he did. He knew that there were none who understood the way that he had chosen. And he also knew that there were many who would have followed him while he continued to produce miracles and wonders and signs. I'll follow Jesus. Right? I'll follow Jesus. He does amazing things. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's an amazing concept. He's loving. He's gentle. He's healer. He's friend. He, he makes me feel good inside. I'll follow him. You see, Jesus has always been inclusive on who can follow him. So all should, like, follow him, man. Go after him. What, what attracts you to Jesus? There's nothing wrong with that attraction, by the way. He is the God of miracles. He is the great healer and the great physician. But what I don't want as, as, as your friend and pastor, what I don't want is for you to just stop there. Because then we miss all that he has in store for our life and our discipleship to him for the future of our life here on earth. You see, you don't need a degree, okay? Some of us, that's like, oh, praise God. <laughs> you don't need a degree. You don't need to be smart. You don't need to be intellectual. You don't need to have money. You can have a chaotic past. In fact, you can have chaos all around you right now. You don't need to be perfect in any sense of the word perfection because that's just not what Jesus is after here. Although we should aim for perfection, but we know like, gosh, there's no, I mean, I can work really hard towards it, right? And our discipleship to Jesus, if the conversation ends there, then we are in trouble. When Jesus becomes Lord, the question shifts from what can you do for me, Jesus, 
to what can I do for you? Do you hear that? I'll say it again. The question shifts from, Savior, what can you do for me? And, and you'll know where you're at. And I say this with all love because I want to be a discipling church. If your prayers are just what can you do for me, you're an immature follower of Jesus. And with all love, I say that, friend, honestly. But, but like, you can make a conscious decision right here, right now. I'm no longer going to just be praying for me. How, how do I shift my heart, my mind, my posture? Because if you follow Jesus long enough, you begin to realize he invites you to die. So then it's no longer like, what can you do for me? What can you do for me? Instead, like, what can I do for, for others, God? Like, what, what can I do for my friend? What can I do for my neighbor? What can I do for my siblings? What can I do for my, my family members? What can I do for, like, Thomas as he works at uh, Trader Joe's? What can I do for the guys that come in and tell them about Jesus? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm fearful, and, and I say that word with, like, not, not like a tremble, but just like a caution that you could follow Jesus for 20, 30, 40 years and be in that mindset. It's about me. It's about me. It's about me. I didn't like that worship song. It's about me. You know, I didn't like this or that about the church. It's about me. You know, I have a problem with my sister, so I'm not going to talk her to her anymore. It's about me. It's about me. But yet you're a disciple of Jesus. No, that's wrong, bro. It's not about you. I can't forgive. I can't they do what the things. Do you realize the things they did to me? Yeah, what did they do to Jesus, man? And he said, first, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So th this is what discipleship to Jesus looks like. And I'm so grateful that I've had men and women in my life speak into my life to say, this is what kingdom mind looks like. It's no longer Americanized Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And I've said this before, and I'm sorry to say it again. Jesus of America is a success-driven Jesus. And my friend, good luck with that. Instead, Jesus of Nazareth is come and die. Success is irrelevant with me. What good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? No, 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 notice, I'm not saying success is bad. I love, I like, I mean, it feels good, it's cool, right? <laughs> be honest, you just gotta be. But when, when my success is more important than what Jesus wants to do in my life, I'm off, I'm off. Is that, is, that, is that okay? You guys can feel that? Because I can feel it too. This is for me, right? I'm preaching to myself here. <laughs> so Ronald Reagan said it best. I love this quote. <clears throat> Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And if I could say it in another language, a bad king says, what can my kingdom do for me? Where they sit like the Romans and the, the emperors, like, bring me my grapes, right? <laughs> Go peasant over there, you know? What, what a bad king says, like, what can you all do for me? But a good king says, what, what can I do for you? And, and that, by the way, is the shift of Jesus and his leadership and his servanthood. That is why uh, even secular thought are, like, blown away by the, the, the leadership model of Jesus. That is why if you read books like a guy named Jim, uh, Jim Collins, good to great, he like is enamored by this servant leadership of Jesus. And he says, man, I've noticed when I look at CEOs, the ones that actually served their people were more successful instead of the ones that could get in a room and say, what are all you not doing for me? Instead, hey, man, like what, what's going on in your life? What can I do for you? So that's what we're after here. So because Jesus is the searcher of human hearts, we begin to get uncomfortable when, here it is, 
Jesus talks about service to others. That's when we start getting uncomfortable. It's like, hey, man, I can come to church and go to Bible study, but when you start telling me to, like, use my body to serve, I think I have, like, a problem with that. I'm good over here, like, just kind of doing my thing, listening in, taking notes. No more than that, man. And it's like, okay, well, then you're going to miss in the beauty and the wonder of the kingdom of God. Because the rabbi, our rabbi says, serve. Be for others what they can't be for themselves. The other is we begin to get uncomfortable when self-denial, it's no longer about you. That's what we just talked about. But we also begin to get uncomfortable when Jesus says, I want a fully surrendered heart. Full surrender to the will of God. Full surrender. What's that? When you're praying and it's just, what can you do for me? What can you do for me? If you can, and you could do it in a moment, man, honestly. Instead of praying that, it's like, you know what? I'm actually going to hear what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer. Like, it's not my way. It's your way. And, and by the way, I, I can still pray that and be fighting with Jesus in that. I do still, I'll be honest. Right? Like, all right, Lord, like, not my will, but your will be done in my life. And so I have to say it over and over and over. I have to pray that over circumstances in my life over circumstances in some of your life, I have to, to remind my heart, my soul, my mind, my being, it is not about me. What is your will for my life, God? Which, by the way, is much better than you could ever comprehend. So your, your way, and I say this in love, your way is irrelevant. <laughs> a fully surrendered life, a life to where he's king, it's no longer your way, it's his way. It's his way. His way first. What the culture says to do won't work. It won't work. But what Jesus says to do will. But we have a problem with that because we have to sacrifice something. We have to give up of something. The culture says, man, it's, it's all yours, man. Just go for it. Do whatever you want to do. Whatever your heart says to do, go do that. It's like, well, good luck with that, right? So what your heart says to do won't work as well. Surrender everything then, and that's when we get really uncomfortable. And much more, the people of the day of Jesus walked away when he said, pick up your cross. So that's the conversation today, is he is the searcher of your heart. And he knows everything going on in your life. And the good thing is, he's a good king, and what he wants to do, because he's also a good father, is he disciplines those to whom he loves. So if you consider yourself a child of God and you sing a song, that's why you got to be careful, like, oh, hell, King Jesus, then, then we have problems because your will is in opposition to his will in your life. And so it's like, when are you going to give up your will, man? So you can have it all, Jesus. You can have everything. And I would argue, at least in my own discipleship to Jesus, my own, like, I'll say, this sounds good to say, like 30 years of, of walking, of just being a man and, and, and growing and learning and maturing, I've realized over the last, I've, I've given my entire life of 20s to Jesus. I've realized that until I get to the point where it's not about me, Jesus is trying to, to do something in my character then. He's like, oh, man, then you're not ready. Come, come pull back a little bit. Pull back, Sam. You're not ready then. It's about, if it's about you, okay, then you're going to kill yourself doing this. If it's about you, then you're going to get really angry at other people. If it's about you, no, man, it's not about you. So the moment you can give that up is when Jesus can begin to do a deep work in you. 
And so that's my prayer to you, friend. Like, what are you, what do you need to give up to him? And I'll just be honest, is it, is it your sexuality? Is it, is it lust? Is it if you're dating, uh, fooling around before you choose to, like, honor God and get married? Is it your, like, lack of stewardship in your finances where, like, you kind of get to the point, again, where it's like, this is all mine and not Jesus's? Like, what areas in your heart are off? Is it something as subtle as getting, like, really angry at your spouse and then it eventually comes out on your child? Like, what, what is it in your own heart that needs to shift and be fully surrendered to Jesus? That's what we're after here. That's, by the way, what Jesus is after. So then I'll read this last passage of scripture. It says this in Luke 18, verses 18 to 25. It says, uh, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. And you should honor your mother and your father. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. So what is he saying? He's saying, I know exactly what's in your heart, man. I am the searcher of the human heart. You might think you have it all taken and done and well, but you still lack one thing. He says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then when you do that, come follow me. In other words, die to what has become Lord in your life. It doesn't have to be money. What is Lord in your life? What is, it's idolatry, by the way. That's a, a commandment. You shall not have any God before God, right? Any other God. So Jesus is after the idolatry that is within our hearts. He's the searcher of the human condition. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for someone who's rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So for you, it, may, it might not be richness or success. It might be something else. I don't know what that is for you. But until um, Jesus becomes greater than that, you're going to have turmoil. You're going to go through cycles. You're going to go through seasons because he's trying to do something within your heart. And if he could get a hold of your heart, he can get a hold of your future. I say that all the time because it's scripture. If God, the great I am, could get a hold of your heart, he can get a hold of your future. So that's my prayer for you. What do you need to give up for your heart to be fully his? What are you holding on to? And in your holding on to, it's pulling you back. Is Jesus then truly, fully Lord of every avenue? And that's the invitation today, which, by the way, is the same invitation of Jesus. See, religion says you have to do this. You just have to. Like, if you don't do it, it's done. Like, you can't. It's not going to work. But Jesus is like, no, you're invited into this. If, if you just have Jesus as Savior for the rest of your life, that's good enough, man. That's amazing. But you miss out on when Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life to the full. And I can say, honestly, with like true humility, I begin, I'm understanding, okay, that's what you mean. 
that's what you mean. I get it now. I totally get it. Just, ever, just I, I don't need anything else, though I really want it, like, like desperately, and I'll pray for it. When, when that becomes greater than Jesus, then stuff is off, and there's chaos, and there's frustration. But when he truly becomes my king, anything he asks of me, I will give it up. And I, I just would argue that until we get to that place, it's going to be difficult. And I've said this over and over and over, and I'm done, by the way, but I just have to just lovingly rant on this, just for a moment. We can claim to be spiritually mature. You could have went to Bible school. You could have had all the studying and the understanding and sat under the greatest professors to mankind. You could do all the great things, but if your heart isn't his, it means nothing. So I am convinced that Jesus is the searcher of the human heart. And if he could just get inside of your innermost being, he will shape you and mold you and create in you a pure heart, a clean heart. He will do something powerful in your life. Your children and the generations beyond will be blessed because you said, I'm willing to give up everything, God. I don't need the money. I don't need the fame. I don't need the success. I don't need to have the accolade. I don't need any of it. You can have it all. And which, by the way, King Solomon did, and he's like, man, that's my boy. That's my boy. You didn't want all the riches. You didn't want all the things. King David, he's done. His throne is done. And the sun, the air comes up, King Solomon. And Solomon goes to God, and he's like, God, I, there's no way I'm just a young man. How can I rule this beautiful land that my father, King David, established? And the scripture says that God came to him, and he says, what do you want, Solomon? I'll give it to you. What do you want? What would you respond if God said, what do you want? And Solomon said, I just want to be wise, man. God, I just want to be wise. I just, I don't need, I just, I just want wisdom because where you're calling me requires wisdom, not of man, but of you because you're the great counselor. So I just give me the wisdom. And God's like, all right, that's my son. Because you said that, I'm going to give you more. I'm going to bless you with more. But Solomon had idolatry and he failed in the sense that when his father sinned, he would go back to God. When Solomon sinned, he didn't. He didn't. His heart wasn't fully God's. So that's the great tragedy of the story of Solomon. So what good is it to have all the wisdom, but to not have God within you? And so for me, man, I just, I'm dedicated to saying, God, it's this that you need to work on. Do it in here, God. Do it in me. Do it in my, my, my children. Do it in Lenya and Zoe. Do it in Kelly. Do it in this church. Do it in our community. I, I want the spiritual stuff. I want the casting of demons. I love that stuff, right? Because someone's set free. I want the, the, the spoken language. I, I want the, the prophecy. I want the gifts of the Spirit because they're here and they're alive today. But what good is it to have those things and to not be a loving person? What good is it to prophesy and it sounds like clanging symbols because you have no love within you because God hasn't got a hold of your heart. So God, you can have my heart. You can have all of my life. You can have every ounce of me. I just want your love and your goodness because you promised to give me life and life to the full. So right now my prayer for you, friend, is if you're searching and longing to know this king, a good king, then all you have to do is say, yeah, Jesus, do it in me. Jesus, do it in me. Which, by the way, it's just a conversation, and it goes like this. Jesus, I give you my life. 
That's it. Jesus, I give you my life. And it's a conversation that will be a conversation for the rest of your life. Jesus, I give you my life. And maybe some of you need to say that again. Because he's just been savior. <laughs> Jesus, I give you my life. This time, like, I give you everything now. <laughs> this time, like, it's, you can have everything. Yeah, like, maybe my relationship with that boyfriend is not healthy and it's not, a, I'll give that to you. Maybe the thing going on with me and my girlfriend is not of you, so then I as a man have to be healthy and say, hey, we can't keep doing this, and if we keep doing this, it's not pleasing to God because there's a heart thing that's off here. I got, I got to honor God in this. Jesus, I give you my life. Maybe you're not like doing taxes and that's not healthy, and you're like, man, something's off here. Like, I'm not getting blessed. Why am I not getting Well, it's because you're not being healthy. Jesus, I give you my heart. Like every avenue, it, it, he comes into every crevice of lifestyle. It's not just a Sunday thing, man. If you get that wrong, then you'll miss the wonder of Jesus. Amen? Will you stand with me?